0: I do want to thank you all for um, your prayers and support this week for our family. Um, You know, I can just ask that you continue to pray um, for Aaron and myself and Patrick and his wife Marley and uh, Megan and her husband Nick and then the kids and and others. Um, I just thank you for that and your support in a lot of ways and we'll see how we get through this. So why don't we turn to Psalm 34? I think that's our best place to go. Uh, It's page 463 in the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a copy of the Bible yourself, uh, please feel free to not only use that Bible in the Pew, well, Rose, whatever we want to call them, um, but take it home with you as a gift from us. So Psalm 34, this is the word of the Lord this morning for us. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts this morning to hear your word. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. And strengthen me as I pray every time, and uh, there's times when it feels more palpable. And so I ask that you would strengthen, that you would pour out your Spirit this morning, not only upon me, but upon all of us who are here to hear. May you comfort us with the gospel. May you convict us with your law and your word. But most importantly, show us our Savior. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, O Lord, be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Well, some weeks are harder than others, some days, some hours, some minutes. It's not the most profound of thoughts, I know, but there are times where the truths that you have learned to take to heart about the Lord show themselves more fully than at other times. Simply feel more necessary to fall back upon. This has been one of those times over the last week. I'm sure some of you might have even wondered whether I'd be up here this week and had people who were willing to take things off my plate, to do this for me. But honestly, I needed this. I needed these words. I needed refreshed and renewed in this truth that's so obvious in this psalm. You know, those who have been around me for any real length of time know how much I enjoy and appreciate the psalms. I love their honesty, the way they continually point us to the Lord, no matter what it is that we face. Their hymns, their songs of thanksgiving, their laments, and songs about how things simply aren't going the way they're supposed to. And through all of those different emphases, the Psalms point us, point those who read, those who meditate upon the truth to our only hope, to our true source of joy, and Psalm thirty-four in particular does that. But I think we also see something in this Psalm that can be puzzling for us, and that is this: that our joy is in fear. Our joy is in fear. It's found in the fear of the Lord. That's the foundation of our security for our hope in this broken and sinful world. Now, I realize that for some of you, what I said, you're thinking I'm crazy, that it's completely and utterly contradictory to have joy in fear, but it's joy in the the fear of the Lord, and that's the key part. Martin Luther, in his catechism on the, the first of the commandments, the, you know, thou shalt have no other gods before me, his answer to that, what does this mean? He says, we should fear and love God and trust in him above all things. Others have defined fear of the Lord as reverential awe or um, veneration and honor. It's, it's fear that constrains our love and adoration. The fear of the Lord is deeply connected with faith that makes sense. Trusting and believing in the Lord and in all things flows and and works with our fear of the Lord because when other fears and dreads are present in our lives, when anxieties and pains, things that can at times paralyze us, oftentimes many of the, the effects from those fears, those fears can be real and are real, but the effects of those oftentimes stem from unbelief. John Flavel, a wonderful Puritan pastor, wrote this. He said, if men would but dig to the root of their fears, they would certainly find unbelief there. Matthew 8, 26, why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? The less faith, still the more fear. Fear is generated by unbelief, and unbelief strengthened by fear. And therefore, all the skill in the world, all the skill in the world can never cure us of the disease of fear till God first cure us. Of our unbelief, Christ, therefore, took the right method to rid his disciples of their fear by rebuking their unbelief. The remains of this sin in God's own people are the cause and fountain of their fears. David calls us in this psalm to fear and to greater faith and trust. These work hand in hand, as Calvin wrote, The knowledge of God set forth for us in Scripture invites us first to fear God, than to trust Him. The Lord throughout Scripture calls us as a people to humble ourselves, to praise Him, to magnify His name, to trust Him. And folks, there's, there's much, much more that I could go into on the fear of the Lord, but the basic idea I want to get across is this. It's reverential awe. It's proper worship. It's, it feeds our trust and belief. It's, it's the way we relate to the Lord, not in a cowering aspect, but in this He is so much greater and bigger and stronger, and He is sovereign. John Murray once wrote that the fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness. It's the foundation for our security and our hope. And this is what I want us to see this morning, and and perhaps the the joy of fear, the, the comfort that comes is more palpably felt by some based on circumstances that are being confronted. But I want you to know this. No matter what you're going through this week and whether things are, are, are all well, you're, you're maybe outside of anxieties and dread, I can guarantee this, you need to learn this truth. Because you will have to fall back upon it. You cannot stand on your own. You need to fall back upon the Lord in everything. Now, I've broken down our text into two larger sections. Verses 1 to 10, David is calling the people to magnify the Lord with him. Basically, magnify with me. Then in 11 to 22, he's saying, listen to me. Listen to me. To learn, listen and, and learn wisdom. Learn the fear of the Lord. So these first 10 verses are really, they're, they're, they're a mix of David calling the people to magnify the Lord with his personal testimony of how the Lord has worked in his life. Look at the first three verses again. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I think the call there is fairly clear. Magnify, bless, praise the Lord with me. And it's not just once and it's not just when all is well. He says, at all times continually. No matter what is going on, we are called to magnify the Lord. Naked, I came from my mother's womb. Naked, I shall return. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job could say that in all the tragedy he faced. We are called to it at all times. And David knows, and part of the reason I think that he can do this is he knows that all times are in the hands of the Father. All times are in his hands, Psalm 31, 15. Verse 2, though, I think gives us a clue further as to to how we can do this, how we can live and operate in this manner. It's humility. It's humility. We are to be self-forgetful. I love how one pastor has talked about humility. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. And that, of course, allows us to boast in the Lord to our very soul, to the core of who we are. It also frees us from other fears and anxieties because we're boasting in the Lord. As we enjoy Him, as we magnify Him, our fear, our right and reverential fear of Him grows. And this is a major shift in perspective for us. So often, I think we all live in a bubble, not a a bubble from COVID or anything like that, but a bubble of ourselves, That, that, that the center of our universe is right down the middle of the axis of our body, and we live in this bubble of about three feet. And that's a very isolating place to be. It's not comfortable, It's not at all good for us, nor those around us. But when the the gospel of grace, by by the love of God in Christ, we learn to take that focus off of ourselves and and burst that bubble in many ways, then we can begin to praise and magnify the Lord and find our fears begin to be alleviated. Because we realize we are not the center of the universe. See, David, in his self-forgetfulness is calling others to join him in the joy of praising God. He doesn't content himself with his own joy. He wants others to join him. Oh, magnify the Lord with me! He longs for this, for the, for the good of the community. He knows it's actually good for the people to praise and magnify and trust in the Lord. See, David then gives some of his reasons. Here's some of his personal testimony in verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. David was not immune to fearful times, to fear-inducing times. If you look at the, the subscript, like you see the number thirty-four on the Psalm, and then you see what's written next to it. I, I have to do this to see what's written next to it. It says of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. So this is a story that's recorded in First in Samuel twenty-one. David is fleeing from Saul. Saul doesn't like David anymore, because David's more popular than Saul, and so David's fleeing from Saul, and he ends up in Gath. Now, if you know anything about Gath, Gath is the region of a really big, burly dude who was a champion. The guy's name was Goliath. David not long ago chopped his head off after killing him with a stone to the forehead. So he's fleeing from Saul, a guy who just threw a spear at him trying to pin him to the wall. And he ends up in front of the king of Gath of the people who David just, just, just killed their, their champion. This is not a proverbial rock in a hard place. This is a real one. Okay, He is in dire straits. It was terrifying. It was humiliating. The, the way he got out of it was he feigned being a madman. He's got spittle running down his face. He looks like a nut job. And they're like, I don't, the king's like, I don't need any more mad men in my presence. Just get rid of him. Now, I'm positive no one in here has fled from one king to another, fleeing their lives. But I'm sure we've been in situations with similar emotional components, where there are fears that run amok in our heads and hearts, where we're terrified, where shame rushes over us like a mighty waterfall. We are troubled, and some are right now. Perhaps it's a health situation, and those can be distressing and scary and and difficult. There's family strife or pain. Marriage is not what you wished it to be. Your kids are out of control or hurting. Your extended family won't speak to you, or there has been a death in the family. Maybe it's work. Your boss doesn't understand and doesn't care. He doesn't even know your name. You're just, hey, you, and he doesn't care what you do unless you just do exactly what he says. You're misrepresented and misunderstood day by day. Joy seems to be a fleeting thought. And here's the thing. Those fears are real. Those anxieties and those dreads, they're real. We don't live in an illusory uh, illusory world. Those things are real. Real. I find what Calvin wrote so helpful. He says, By his fears, the psalmist means the dangers which sorely disquieted his mind. Yet, doubtless, he confesses that he had been terrified and agitated by fears. He did not look upon his dangers with a calm and untroubled mind. He, he wasn't a stoic, folks as if he viewed them at a distance and from some elevated position. But being grievously tormented with innumerable cares, he might justly speak of his fears and terrors. We don't go through life just trying to to disconnect from our emotions and say it doesn't matter. Those fears are real. Those pains are real. Those dreads are real. Those anxieties can be very real. So what did David do? In the midst of them, he sought the Lord, and the Lord delivered him. I think of what he wrote in Psalm 23:4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David was a humbled, a poor, and needy man who cried out to the Lord, and he was heard. He was saved. He saw firsthand the work of the Lord in his life. He recognized that his being saved was not because he acted like a nut job in front of the king, but because the Lord was there. The angel of the Lord had encamped around him and delivered him from all his fears. This is the privilege of the child of God, of all those who fear the Lord. And look at verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Shame is a massive fear. Shame is debilitating so often in our lives. We hate shame. Shame is painful. But for those who look to the Lord... The shame is taken away. Our our shame is most often felt in our sin because of our guilt in the garden before the the first sin. How does it describe Adam and Eve? They were naked and were without shame. There was innocence. But after their sin, they were afraid and ashamed. And the only way, true way, to eliminate shame was not in them sewing fig leaves together, but in the Lord preparing a sacrifice and clothing them with skins. A foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. The only way to eliminate shame is found in the Lord. It's in His forgiveness. Psalm 130, verse 4, another puzzling verse for many. But with you there is forgiveness, That you may be feared. I don't think that's how most of us would have ever written Psalm 130, verse 4. We would have written with you, with you there is forgiveness that, that I may be freer, that you may be loved. But no, he writes that you may be feared, that we may be in right relationship. And in that forgiveness, in that freedom from shame comes radiance. There's brightness to our faces because of God's work of love and grace. And then comes David's invitation to know this. Look at verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He says, taste and see. Know the goodness of the Lord. This This isn't just a little taste. Okay? This isn't just a little taste. This is full-on immersion. This is, this is diving in. This summer, Reed and I had the privilege, while we were in Turkey, to paraglide. And it wasn't just some little five-minute jaunt or where we were tethered to anything. A few hundred feet in the air, but it was 30-plus minutes of sheer amazement after running off a 2,000-meter-high mountain peak. That's him in the front, and that's me back behind him. We had the joy of soaring and exploring how it all worked. With pilots, of course, we did not go alone. But I can say there were some nerves before running off the side of a mountain. I began to wonder whether those... All I had was carabiners holding my little basket in place to nylon. Hoping that nylon was very, very, very strong. But once I sat back and I just... I relaxed, and in a sense, I took refuge in what was there. I trusted it. Oh, it was joyous. It was delightful. The whole thing, I I trusted the the chute, the harness, the pilot, and it was such a blessing and such a joy. That was tasting and seeing. Now, I could have gone through the whole thing like this the whole way. I would not have enjoyed it when I sat back and I tasted and I saw that it was good, that it was delight. That, that's what we're called to do. Not just a little taste and not do so with fear the whole time, but to, to taste and see, to, to, to rest in the joy and the goodness. I think that's truly fulfilling our end in life. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, says, What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. John Piper, the former pastor up in Minnesota, he would adjust that a little bit. I, I have some reticence with adjusting the catechism, but he did it, and I think it's fine. He says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And I think that's actually really good. Because how in the world can you, write, can, can you magnify and glorify something that you can't stand, that you're not enjoying how could you, could you magnify the, the, the work of a chef if you're, if you're spitting out the food the whole time going, this is disgusting? That doesn't glorify a chef. And, and we have to glorify, we enjoy God. That is part of our glorifying of Him. We take refuge in Him. We fear the Lord. And those who do so, David says, lack no good thing. Now this is not some empty promise of affluence that we're all going to be driving much nicer cars than are parked outside. That's not what he's saying. Just think of David's circumstances. He was alone looking like a nut job. This is a promise and an assurance of God's care for his people. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The great shepherd cares for his sheep. David is calling on us to fear and trust God, and that comes from knowing him, being more and more acquainted with his character and his ways. David had worldly fears, we know that, and he had dread, but he sought the Lord because he knew the Lord. David tasted of the goodness of God and saw his deliverance, not as his own doing, but rightfully as the work of God. It's the Lord's goodness and grace. So in seeing all that, he moves on in this psalm to a passionate plea, to a command in many ways. He says, listen to me. Look at verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So here's his question, do you desire a long life and seeing much good? Do you desire that? Well, the good you enjoy, there is correlation with seeking of good, with the pursuit of good, with seeking peace. Again, this is not some prosperity gospel distortion. It's truth. This is how the world was set up. There is blessing in obedience. There is blessing in living rightly. There is blessing in pursuing the Lord. Yet, at the same time, that does not take away from the reality of affliction, the reality that we live in a broken and sinful world. The rest of this psalm really speaks to that truth, the truth of affliction, but with that to the truth of God and his presence. So let's look at the rest of the psalm from verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servant. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned." This is comfort and joy in the fear of the Lord. Look at those first few verses, 15 and, and around that area. Look at the contrast between the righteous and those who do evil. Verse 16, could there be any more of a striking picture of complete and utter unwelcome than that? Your memory will be cut off from the face of the earth. And then in verse 21, it says affliction will slay the wicked. If you look at other translations, they'll actually translate it to say evil will slay the wicked. And I think that speaks to to an amazing truth. The evil, the wicked people are actually slayed by the the evil that they pursue. The path of following evil is self-destructive. Even if it looks at times like Psalm 73, uh, Asaph complains about that, why are they prospering? The reality is, as he goes to the sanctuary of God, and he says, when I went to the sanctuary of God, I perceived their end. The pursuit of evil will actually lead to your destruction. And all the while, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The Lord sees and the Lord hears. Just think about that for a second. The Lord sees and the Lord hears. Isn't that so vital when one is afflicted and in pain and in fear and in dread and in anxiety? We don't want to be alone. Not truly. We may may want to get away from people a little bit, but we really actually don't want to be alone. We want to and we need to be seen and heard. We don't want to be isolated, and here it's not merely uh, someone in in our family or community that sees and hears, though I will say that that is many times the way the Lord manifests the way that he cares for people, the way he shows that he sees and hears, but more importantly, what this says and what we have to see through the way the community comes around and surrounds and loves and protects is that it's the Lord that has seen and heard your cries. And seen and heard your affliction. He knows our need. He hears our prayers, our cries of pain and heartache, our cries of desperation. When the world around us is not as it's meant to be, when the the sinfulness of men around us and even our own sin leads to pain and affliction, the Lord hears, the Lord knows, the Lord sees. First question and answer to the Heidelberg Catechism we recited earlier in the service. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I've been bought with a price, and I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has saved me. And and on and on, that not a hair can fall from my head without him knowing it. Folks, that's the hope of the believer. This is, not, this is not the sure hope of everyone in the world without exception, but it is the hope of every believer in Christ without exception. And that, for one, should even just, on a side note, push us to share this gospel of grace with the world, because we all need a Savior who sees and hears. This is for those who have turned to Christ as Savior, who have repented of their sin and believed. And I think verse 18 ranks way high as the sweetest verse in Scripture. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He does not crush the crushed. He's gentle and lowly. Isaiah 42, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Behold my servant, speaking of the Messiah, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench." picture there is that he restores. He doesn't extinguish it. He restores us to new life. He infuses and, and, and encourages to, to give courage. He, he gives us comfort and hope. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, "'Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the heart of our God. The one we are to fear is tender and gentle with his people, with those who humble themselves and come to him. He is tender and gentle, he does not crush his children. We will all face affliction, all of us, and very possibly many are the afflictions we will face, but the Lord is faithful and kind and good. He is so good. He will deliver us, and here's the reason we can count on that. Now, David gave some personal testimony in the psalm. But in the power of the Spirit, under the inspiration of the Spirit, David actually spoke of something that wasn't, that hadn't yet come. Verse 20 is actually picked up in the New Testament. John 19, 33 and 36. Jesus is on the cross, and it says, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. This is the glorious foundation of the promises in the psalm. As Mark Futato wrote, Jesus tasted the bitter cup of God's wrath in our place that we might taste and see that he is good. Jesus was afflicted. And humiliated and beaten and mocked and shamed, his dignity given up to to a um, a, a way greater extent than David experienced or that any of us have ever experienced. And so David, inspired by the Spirit of the Lord, spoke of his greater Son, the one in his line, the Messiah. He spoke of our true redemption, not simply being saved from our worldly afflictions, which is comforting and necessary but actually being saved from our greater affliction and that's our sin and our rebellion against God, our true shame we can rejoice we can stand radiant as we look to our substitute as Derek Kidner wrote the Christian, look, look, at, look at verse 22 while I read this, look at verse 22 follow along The Christian can echo the jubilant spirit of the psalm with added gratitude, knowing the unimagined cost of 22a, the Lord redeems the life of his servants, and the unbounded scope of 22b, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. He redeems the life of his servants through turning his face away from his son, and his son willingly going to the cross on behalf of sinners like you and me. And because of him, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Romans 8:1 There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So no matter what our current experience of affliction or not, our joy is in the Lord. Our joy is in knowing where our hope is. It's in the fear of the Lord. The fear will produce in us something that is actually deep and durable. It will produce in us a delight in our refuge because we've tasted and we've seen that he is good. A delight knowing the blessing, the blessing of our personal, gracious, and loving God who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all. Let's go to Him in refuge. Let's taste and see that He is good. Learn the fear of the Lord and rest in Him. Let's pray. Father, do pour out Your Spirit upon us. Help us to see Your goodness and Your grace. Lord, if there are any here who do not know You, who have not turned and taken refuge and seen the the guilt and shame of their sin taken away. Lord, may you work in their hearts and their minds. Give them a heart of flesh. Take out the heart of stone that they may see and know and taste and see that you are good. And for those who know you, Lord, may we in all things turn to you in our many afflictions and in our pain, Because it is only in you, in our fear of you, in our taking refuge in you, that we know the true and only comfort. So be at work, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active and works in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.